uh, going up to Ramath-Gilead with Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, uh, together to try and take some ground. Uh, And what happens is Ahab goes incognito, but ends up getting pierced with an arrow and dies. So Ahab is dead. And then we begin in 2 Kings chapter 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending men to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on you will certainly die. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then the fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this the king sent to Elijah another captain and his fifty men. The captain said to him, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. So the king sent a third captain with his fifty men. This third captain went up, fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of the fifty men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up, went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you consult, for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Jehoram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's join together in prayer. Isn't it amazing the things that you learn from your parents? I grew up in the middle of the countryside uh, in Mid-Ulster. My father was a mechanic uh, and a farmer. He also was a qualified electrician, a bit of a welder, a bit of a builder, and do some plumbing if he needed to do that as well. He could do put her hand to basically most of, mostly anything, not everything, but mostly a lot of things. It's amazing the skills you pick up. I managed to learn a lot from my father, not as much as I wish I had now, but I managed to learn a lot. For example, I can mix cement, lay foundations, build a wall. I could take the brakes of your car apart and put them back together. You mightn't want me to do that. Um, but I can do a lot of things because, not because I studied them, because I learned them from my father just by being with him, helping him on the, the many projects around our house. Um, I added many skills and much knowledge. And it's the same as we begin here in Second Kings. We find that Ahab, King Ahab, is dead, the previous chapter. And now his son, Ahaziah, is now king in his place. And Ahab has taught his son many things. He has gained knowledge from his father, and he sets out in the way of Ahab. But this time what Ahab teaches his son isn't for his benefit. In fact, Ahaziah is a chip off the old block, so to speak, as far as the kings of the northern kingdom were concerned. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 22, the last chapter of, 20, of 1 Kings, and verses 51 to 53, do you see what the author makes of Ahaziah, Ahab's son? He says this, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, king of Israel and son of Ahab, became king of Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel just two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in the ways of his father and mother, that is, Ahab and Jezebel, in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger, just as his father had done. So as we come to this book, this book of two kings, we remember that the divide between one and two kings is an artificial divide. It's really one long, continuous story. We end with the death of Ahab. Now, what happens in Israel? Will Israel now turn back to the Lord after this evil king Ahab is, is gone? No. His son who comes after him continues in his father and mother's footsteps. He continues with promoting Baal worship in Israel and provokes the Lord to anger. And two Kings here begins with this very sad and almost pitiful story of Ahab's first son, Ahaziah, and his failure to learn from all the experiences of his father, all the experiences that he went through with Elijah and the judgment of God. So, in a way, Ahaziah has learned a lot from Ahab and Jezebel. He has learned all their bad habits. And in another way, he has learned absolutely nothing. So as we look at this passage, a very solemn passage, I want to look at it in terms of three points. Three points about God. Firstly, God is intolerant. God is intolerant. Secondly, God is ruthless. God is ruthless. And thirdly, God is not to be messed with. God is not to be messed with. Now, I've chosen those headings deliberately to try and get you thinking, why would we look at God in these terms? So let's begin. Ahaziah comes to the throne in political terms 
as he comes to the throne, it, he has just inherited a very powerful and successful kingdom from the reign of his father. But immediately we see things are not well. Moab has rebelled, verse 1. The power and influence that Israel has is beginning to slip. And is it any wonder, considering Ahaziah is continuing in his father and mother's footsteps? He is forsaking the covenant, the commandments of God. Not only does Ahaziah have political problems, but we find that he falls out of the upper room of his palace through a lattice work, and he is badly hurt. So he's staring death in the face as well. But the really sad thing about this whole affair is that Ahaziah now does something which can only be said to be totally and utterly stupid. So he sent messengers saying to them, go and consult, ba- go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. Verse 2. There he lies on his bed, not sure what's going to happen to him. The king of Israel, the shepherd of God's people, the Lord's servant. And what does he do? Go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. You see, if in 1 Kings 21, if that showed us idolatry's results on a society, here we have idolatry's, a legacy of idolatry. It's passed on from generation to generation. There was no two options for Ahaziah here. No choosing between Yahweh and Baal. Ahaziah had been brought up with Baal. He had learned to serve Baal, and now he was becoming like Baal. Stupid. You can just imagine Jezebel tucking the young Ahaziah in as a small child, singing him to sleep with songs of Baal's apparent greatness, reading him stories of the god Baal. And now we see Ahaziah acting in accordance with his beliefs as he goes after this idol. Even when death, death stares him in the face, he looks to a lump of rock which was proven to be a fraud on Carmel by Elijah. Not even death can cause him to sober up, to see the stupidity of his idolatry. For idolatry equals stupidity. Now, that might sound quite harsh. It's fine, of course, if we're talking about Baal. He's not around anymore. But what about if we say materialism equals stupidity? I guarantee that some of us might even start getting defensive, start thinking to ourselves, well, it's all right for you to say all that, but the bills still have to be paid, the kids still need this, we still need that. And before you know it, we've justified ourselves in going after the idol of materialism. Now, you might be getting tired of my constant going on about materialism, but there's a good reason for that. We are all materialists to a certain degree. Materialism, and materialism equals stupidity. The culture in which we live in at the minute is a culture built upon an economy. We need this economy, we are told, in order for our nation to work, in order to give us the lives that we are supposed to want. So we're told to go out and spend, go out and consume all that we can get. Part of a culture that tells us to spend our way out of a recession when there's not enough money in the first place. All so that we can have security, so that we can ha- have happiness. Yet like Ahaziah, we need to remember that there is no security in idolatry. Idolatry never saved anyone. It is stupid for us to replace true security with the false sense of security that comes with materialism. All the wealth in the world cannot extend our life by one day. 
All the material wealth in the world won't help us when death's cold, sullen stream rolls over us. And yet, no matter how much we try, we are always tempted to run after idols. They still tempt us to follow them rather than follow Jesus. Think of our society. In ancient times, they built temples to Baal. In our day, we build temples to materialism, vast economic buildings where we're told to go in and lay our tithes and offerings before the gods and consume what we, the pleasure that they can give us. This is the culture we live in. This is what we're taught when we're children, through the media, through the radio, through all these different mediums. We are bombarded with this idea that happiness equals material wealth, that a successful country equals a stable economy, a growing economy. Now, that may well be so. It may, may need a stable economy, but does that necessarily equal happiness? Is that necessarily what our life is about? No. And we have to be really careful. And this is the reason. Brings us to our first point. God is intolerant. He is completely intolerant of our idolatry. Completely intolerant of our idolatry. Now, to Western ears, that sounds incredibly negative because intolerance is one of those ultimate heresies in our society. But God is not a democracy. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. What He says goes. He is not swayed by opinion polls like spineless politicians. For to put it very simply, He is the only God, and anything else, anything else that we serve, we are actually serving nothing. To put our hope in an idol is to put our hope in nothing. To find our security in an idol is to find our security in nothing. Idols have no power, no majesty. They have no ability to save us, nor ability to heal us. And it is the sad case with Ahaziah that not even death could sober him out of his stupidity. But God won't let him away with it. He is intolerant of our idolatry. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. Elijah goes to meet the messengers. He reports to them what Yahweh told him. For Ahaziah must learn that his life is in the hands of the Lord of heaven and earth, not some lump of rock in a temple 45 miles from Samaria in the land of the Philistines. God hates our idolatry. He demands our loyalty. He shares his glory with no one. He is intolerant when it comes to his glory. He accepts no second best. I love the comment of Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary. He says this, The suave, self-appointed connoisseurs of religious taste in our time will be aghast if they ever happen on this story. How can Yahweh in His wild, untamed holiness sentence a man to death simply for exercising his religious preference in a critical hour of his life? Yahweh here is not the democratic sort of God people crave, according to the Poles. Our times would prefer the mythology of the ancient Near East, where gods and goddesses were permissive and casual and never insisted upon exclusive loyalty. None of these deities thought it a mortal sin 
should one of his or her devotees want to be ecumenical in his devotion. But in the Bible, we meet Yahweh and keep bashing ourselves up against the first commandment. Ahaziah needed to see that Yahweh was the only God and that his life or death was determined by him. Death is not a time to go fiddling around with the latest and greatest of society's modern idols. When death faces us, what we require is him who has the words of eternal life, not idols that promise much but deliver nothing. We need to look to Jesus who promises much and delivers on those promises. He is the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? God is intolerant of our idolatry. So the messengers come back to Ahaziah, and he knows that something must be wrong as they're back early. So they report to him what took place. They replied that this man had told them to come back and say to him, this is what the Lord says. It is because there is no God in Israel that you're sending men to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Notice the pattern here, how this is being repeated. Therefore, you will not leave your bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. I guarantee the king was a little annoyed at this. And he asks who the man was, and he finds out it was Elijah the Tishbite, the enemy of his father Ahab, that annoying prophet, the one who's always poking his nose into the affairs of the kings, that hairy man who seems to hold more influence than he should. What does the king propose to do with him? After he has just received this death sentence for his idolatry, what does he do? Then he sent to Elijah a captain of 50 men. And the captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. Now, what are we to make of this story? It might sit a little uncomfortably with us after all. Why would Yahweh send fire from heaven like this to consume these men? They were only doing their duty after all, were they not? And do we really like the thought of a God who is as ruthless as this? And so we see our second point in this. God is ruthless. Let me explain. Again, we don't like to think of God in those terms. Uh, it makes us very uncomfortable. But God is ruthless. He is ruthless with sin. You see, here what we have is Ahaziah deliberately trying to use his authority as the king to get rid of of Elijah. After all, he wasn't sending 50 soldiers up that hill just to give Elijah a handshake, was he? Tell him, well done. These soldiers came with the full authority of the king. They issued the king's command. Elijah, get down off this hill at once. The king of Israel commands it. You see, see, you see Ahaziah thinks he can command the Lord's anointed, Elijah. He thinks he can stop the word of the Lord being fulfilled. But what he doesn't realize is that God is not manipulated by force of arms. God doesn't turn tail and run when a battalion of soldiers arrive. Ahaziah thinks he has authority over this prophet. And he sends these soldiers to make sure that that authority is exercised. 
But God doesn't take kindly to those who seek to ignore His ultimate authority. For after all, that's exactly what Ahaziah has done. In running after the idols of the pagan nations, he has basically said that Yahweh, the covenant Lord, is non-existent. Yahweh doesn't matter. Notice how Yahweh repeats this phrase all three times. There is it because there is no God in Israel that you go to Baal-Zebub, the king of Ekron. What is Ahaziah doing? And it's the same for our idolatry as well. When we go after idols, we simply imply that Yahweh is not sufficient, that He doesn't matter. And God is ruthless with our sin. The first captain arrives with his 50 men and commands Elijah in the name of the king to come down. You can hear the total contempt in the way that he says, man of God, the king says. Is this the way that you address the Lord's anointed? Is this how you treat the prophet who bears the word of the Lord? Do you think you can really stop the word of the Lord from accomplishing its purpose? Answer, no, on all accounts. Elijah answers this threat, and the Lord sends the fire from heaven, and it's all over. The battalion and its captain are charcoal. So what do we make of this? Well, first of all, remember that fire, fire in the Bible is always associated with God's holiness. But more than that, also remember back to 1 Kings 18, that great episode on the top of Carmel between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Fire came down from heaven before and consumed the sacrifice on the top of Mount Carmel. And here we have the same idea again. Ahaziah should have got the message from what he had known about the events between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Carmel. But God has to make the point again. Baal is powerless to help Ahaziah. Only Yahweh is the true God, the one who control, is in control of nature, in control of life and death. You see, like Ahab before him, Ahaziah is ignoring the word of the Lord, ignoring the Lord's commandments, ignoring the Lord's prophet. And God is ruthless with his idolatry and his sin. But Ahab, Ahaziah ignores the warnings. And instead, what does he do? He sends another captain and his 50. He just doesn't get this. And they come up to Elijah. And this time they try the even more heavy-handed approach. Man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. Ahaziah not getting this picture, still ignoring the word of the Lord, still doesn't repent of his idolatry and his sin And the result is the same fire comes down from heaven and there is another cremation ceremony on the top of the hill. Before God's all-consuming holiness, no sin can be allowed. No sinner can stand. Like the flaming sword that guarded the way to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out, this fire was meant to show that Ahaziah, that he was in danger, that he needed to repent and cast himself before the Lord and ask for forgiveness, ask for his mercy. But he doesn't get it. And what does he do again? Another captain and his 50 men. But this time, this captain is different. The third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life 
And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. This time, the captain comes away alive with his 50 men. And I think the author is telling us here, he's building a a contrast between the first two captains and this one. Notice the very different way they approach Elijah. The first two seek to command him, but here this captain pleads for mercy for his life. I think the author here is showing us the proper response to the holiness of Yahweh. How do we approach a God who is a consuming fire? With fear and trembling. With a healthy fear of God. Understanding His greatness and our weakness and helplessness all before His ruthless holiness. A fear which humbles us before Him and helps us hear His voice. God is ruthless with sin. His holiness rages against everything that corrupts His good creation. And that includes us. Don't for a moment think about that silly thing that we often hear sometimes, that God God loves the sinner but hates the sin. In the Bible, there is no distinction between sinner and sin. The reason sin exists is because sinners exist. God is angry with sinners. The God we come to is not some sort of pat you on the back, all will will be okay kind of God. He's not the Jesus is my buddy kind of God. Yahweh is a consuming fire who is ruthless with sin, whose holiness burns against all sin and everything which corrupts His good creation, and He will bring it into judgment. Let's make no mistake. Sin and evil will be wiped out when Christ comes back again. And let's not be fooled into thinking that, well, that's an Old Testament thing. It's not the same in the New Testament. Things don't happen like that anymore. Well, we do live in the time of grace. And God has mercifully given us time to repent and turn to Him and be saved. But He has also promised that Jesus will come back and bring everything into judgment. All sin will be accounted for and dealt with ruthlessly. Friends, our God is a consuming fire. Don't be on the wrong side of His holiness. Rather, come humbly and seek His forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Listen to Jesus as He began His earthly ministry in Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. And finally, we see the way this sad, sad tale ends in verses 15 to 18. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up, went down with him to the king. He told the king, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you consult, that you have sent to consult messengers, uh, sent messengers to consult the Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Elijah goes down to see the king, announces the same message to him, and there's no change. Ahaziah is going to die. He's going to experience the judgment of God because he ignored God and ran after idols. 
in his time of great need, he looked for help in the wrong place. Now, he pays. He receives his reward. This is a great, a story of great sadness. The writer of Kings tells us only one story about Ahaziah, king of Israel. The story of his foolishness and his death. That's all. God had announced his judgment, and now God carries it through. There's almost a kind of, well, what did you expect at the last year? Elijah comes down, and we almost think, well, he'll make the king better now, won't he? But Yahweh has spoken, and his word is final. What Yahweh says, that Yahweh does. And Ahaziah has had his chance to turn back, but it's all over. The opportunity was there for him to believe in Yahweh, but he preferred Baal. The opportunity for repentance was there, but he missed it. And God is not to be messed around with. He is perfectly serious about his judgments, and he will carry them through. What God says, he will do. And that's, of course, a great theme in the, throughout the whole book of Kings. What God says in his word, that is what God does. God always does what he says. Ahaziah found that out. Ahab found that out before him. And in the end, many kings of Israel would find that out. God is not to be messed around with. He is intolerant of our idolatry. He is ruthless with our sin. And he follows through on his threats. But he also follows through on his promises. And that's the point, really, to those who come to Jesus in humble recognition of their need. Are they not promised forgiveness and new life? And to those who refuse, are they not destined for judgment? Don't mess about with these issues. If you're not a Christian, then be warned. And if you are a Christian, then be careful. God isn't to be messed with. Remember, this, this story is a story about God's people, God's chosen people. And this story is written to give us instruction and warning that we may learn from their mistakes. For as the author of the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, as he compares Judaism with the kingdom of God, with Christianity, he says this, but you have come to Mount Zion as opposed to to Mount Sinai, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke a word of judgment. Christ's, word, Christ's blood speaks a word of forgiveness. So see to it, do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, that is Moses, how much will we if we turn away from him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, says the author to the Hebrews, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the eternal kingdom of God, let us be thankful 
and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, as we studied this passage, this sad, sad passage, as we've studied these great themes of, Lord, your holiness, Lord, help us to come to you and worship you, to give acceptable worship with reverence and awe, knowing that you are a consuming fire, that you are holy, and that your holiness rages against all our sin and corruption. And Father, may this knowledge, this understanding drive us ever more to the cross, to the Lord Jesus, to forgiveness. May it drive us ever more to repentance, that we may have that new life, that forgiveness that you promise in your gospel. Help us and hear us in our weakness, we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen.